You're listening to the Forest School Podcast with Lewis Ames and Gemma Southerden. Hello. 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 Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It is the afternoon. It's a rainy afternoon. It's really rainy, but I'm quite enjoying it. We've had a, a, a very... It's on PC, isn't it? We've had a very screen-heavy day. We've watched like two films. I think the third one is on downstairs to keep the children occupied while I'm doing this. And just like, you know, do we talk yeah. about in our house having sun guilt. Do you have sun guilt in your house? Oh yeah, if it's nice weather and then you, uh, yeah, you feel guilty for being inside. People, people in other countries are going to be like, yeah. "What are you on about? It's 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 sunny three hundred days a year. <laughs> if it rains, lovely." We're like, no. British yeah. people, if it's sunny, we like have to go out and burn ourselves just because. Take your top off. Take your oh top off God. in a park. Yeah. And have a disposable barbecue and set the lovely landscape on fire. <sighs> um, <Right. laughs> yeah, oh, what a start. Um, happy, happy, happy days. Yeah, tomorrow is going to be torrential, and that is our, uh, yeah, unlimited screen time. Go for your life. Stay. Oh. Already got it planned. Mom, can we watch YouTube? Yep. Be <laughs> alive, which is absolutely um, anyway, fine. It's child we're not talking about we're not talking about screen time on this episode of the podcast. Oh, yeah. we no, we're not, talking not about this one. we're talking about the book Feral by George Monbiot, and I have to confess that I started reading it um, a couple of months ago because I saw it on Audible as a thing like coming soon. And I was like, oh, that looks really cool, a brand new book. And uh, I've only recently, um, after reading most of it, found out that it's actually from 2013. And I think oh, what happened was, oh, is it? Uh, I think what happened was there was a, you know, the audio Resurgence. version of it was new, was new. So, and it is George Monbiot reading it yeah. um, on Audible. It, so is linked, what... it is linked on Amazon with Wilding as a like uh-huh. you know you should buy these as yeah. a package which yeah having read it or listened to it i i well no i was gonna say i completely agree but i haven't finished wilding so mm. uh, i can't really make that call together you and i have read both these books yes yes and i can't remember whether isabella tree references feral or george monbiot in wilding because i read it quite a long time ago if she doesn't, that would surprise me, considering it is like it's, a book about so, rewilding that was written before hers. Yeah, so I think it's worth saying that like my my sort of two sentence summary would be that this book is if you I think most people are aware of the the book Wilding. Um, for those that aren't, it's a lady who took her farm and basically decided to raise wild cattle on it and try and return the land to um, in feral. They use the, the term self willed. So they're kind of it's it's not putting in human things. It's just going like, let it go, let it let it return. Um, and I've always understood that or, or been told that all land is trying to be forest again in Britain. If you mm-hmm. leave it long enough, you know, all of what we do and what animals do is just suppressing forest because it wants to be a forest again. So what I think is interesting. Art. Sorry, can well, I interrupt there? Yeah. But, but in so that's yeah that's generally what we're led to believe and led to believe that the whole of the uk was this incredibly dense forest right in the past Mm. before humans had that much impact on the landscape but in welding she goes on for a long time about like 
something pasture or uh, can yeah. you remember what it is? I know, like the, mixed, I know the term you mixed mean. grassland and woodland basically it's like a coppice explains, pasture or something isn't it yeah it's like um and she explains that that idea of britain being covered in dense forest is actually a complete myth and with the large animals living at the scale that they did that they would have suppressed some tree growth so mm. you would have had like clumps of trees and then loads of like mixed grassland because the animals would have um, eaten the young shoots of the trees and the only trees that would survive are those that would grow in brambles and stuff. More like when you see protected. a savannah, a savannah, yeah. it's, you know, it's cl- clumps, patches of trees and then a bit, a gap and then yeah. like a big clumpy patch. Yeah, um, so but, she sort of manages her farm like that, doesn't she, and puts those animals in to do that. But what so I think is interesting is that I think this book is, there's a, you know, some people say about books is like, um, they work when they've they like they found their moment they found their time they could be saying the same thing like ghost yeah and i feel like this book is if wilding is say level one this book is level five and it's interesting that this one came out first because i do think if you if the concept and the sort of media publicity that wilding had made it quite Mm. mainstream particularly for outdoorsy people um and I can see that before that, if you had just read this book, this book might come across as like, so this book is very, I would say, passionately arguing and campaigning for absolute self-willed land and um, talks all this stuff about, you know, we reintroduce um, native species or or close cousins of native species, uh, animals and plants, and just says, if they don't work, then that's fine. We only have to do it once and then we go, okay, they couldn't survive. The the habitat is not right for them anymore. But what I liked about this book was that it was, it also very clearly says you shouldn't do that to any piece of land willy-nilly, yes. whatever, you know, that's not the most important thing. Be so there's, there's lots of stuff about kind of um, the human price of that, isn't there? Lots of yeah. um, stuff about land that's been stolen from native people on this like proviso of, this is, this is a reserve now. So mm-hmm. you need to get out and your way of life now ends and you are not going to be paid for this land and like atrocities being, you know, um, acted upon native people. And he even sort of extends that to Wales. I really like that bit where yeah. he goes to visit a Welsh mother and son mm-hmm. and um, and they tell him about the kind of traditional farming practices in the state of Wales because he kind of goes in there with very like anti-sheep. He like hates sheep, doesn't he? That's oh, a yeah. funny thing throughout the whole book. Like he calls them the white plague. That was really informative. I have no idea about the kind of no the, that the wool trade and how much that influenced yeah. that. The price of wool meant that we went yeah. right. Get a, get oh a yeah, completely. Applications for forest school training are now open at childrenoftheforest.com. Check out the podcast links for more details. And the fact that so many national parks are full of sheep, so the Lake District and Peak District and so on. Um, and it's claimed to be like a completely wild habitat when in fact the sheep destroy most of the native uh, plants there and he's in one bit he finds that there's more um well there's a better variety of wildflowers and plants on the road verges next to the mm. national park that he's been visiting and finds a complete native desert um but yeah this bit where he goes to wales and um his viewpoint's kind of challenged isn't it when he's kind of um up for rewilding this bit of land and they're like hang on a minute people have lived here for hundreds of years it's already really hard to live here but we're trying to kind of protect our ways of life and honor our kind of customs and stuff and he's like oh yeah okay yeah and so he is very balanced in that way and i also quite enjoyed the bit about um about the nazis 
the bit mm. about like eugenics people being like mm. there's that link that really like appalling link between people who are like yeah wolves and big cats should roam free again we should like reintroduce them because they are like the best species and actually a lot of human life is sub yeah, valued below mm. that of like the wild wolf but only some humans you know <laughs> like mm. um yeah and the bit about the, the woman who um the, the film born free was written about who yeah. raised lion cubs i've forgotten her name now um and then the film it's like oh she's such a wonderful heroine saving these lions and in real life she's like basically a white slave owner in yes, Africa like off the land and and... who gets yeah and who gets well, killed by her own servants. if we just unpack because you've you've kind of got blah, 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 and I think there's Sorry. lots to unpack from different bits of that so the if we go back to the bit about whales that was a really interesting it's quite late in the book and I think that's quite an interesting bit because um it's interesting that he it, it's a very, very well structured book in that by the time you get to this chapter about sheep and uh, you know an actual kind of rubber meets the road let's go and look at some landscapes kind of thing um you're already say six or seven chapters in of him going look this is the reason and this is why and this is some history and this is some stuff you know you're already on side with him and so I think it's an interesting bit where he goes I went and talked to these people and I came away absolutely confused and he says that he he was basically in his head holding both viewpoints of he still thought the land should be returned to self-willed but he also thought so they talk about the these welsh um, families are talking about the fact that the um written history records what happens to the rich and the wealthy and the powerful yeah and, and the land is what's writing the history of everyday people um and there's a great bit where he's talking about the um there's a pub in this valley in Wales and he said uh, someone would walk through the door and they would uh, they would just say the name of a rock um, and someone, oh, else, yeah. someone else in the pub. So all the rocks in this Welsh valley have a name because when they moved around and followed their flocks, they would need them as landmarks. So there's no yeah. writing on them. They just know that's Big Tom. That's, you know, yeah. sheep. Wasn't sheep. it like they hid their hat there or something? A bit yeah, like so they put their hat casting. there. <laughs> and then you would get the pint when you brought back that person's hat. And um, yeah. yeah, so just this. Um, so he's saying, I think it's very interesting, very poignant that he brought it. He didn't just go, there are no reasons to do this, uh, not to do this rewilding thing. You know, he actually mm. considers the other side. And I think it's very, um, it, it's very well done. It shows a, a level of humility to go, well, I went to see these people and they challenged me. And then the next chapter is him going, after I thought after I thought about it, these are my counterpoints, and I have since sent them. You know, and it's this little dialogue. He says, "I sent them to mm. this Welsh family, and this is what they've said back." And this is so I thought again, and this is mm. so. I do think, like you're saying, it's a very interesting book that he is very passionate and mentions it in almost every chapter that he is not an advocate for. Um, uh, I can't think what the word the word is now, like consolidation and you know, the government coming in and saying, right, you cannot have this land because we're going to do this national. It's like, if the people who own the land aren't on board, it's our, one of the things we can do is then to convince them to talk. To yeah. Them. And actually, I think it was very <clears throat> well thought out when he views things. And it, it's something that I have been in contact with for a while, which is this idea of 
um, and it's quite poignant now, um, is EU subsidies for land and for farmers. Mm. And that most, whether they are open about it or not, the majority of agricultural farming, like uh, like um, livestock farming in the UK, um, loses money. It actively loses money to run that as a business. But the EU subsidises farmers for their land. It subsidises them on the price of their product. It subsidises them on, on all these things. And so he kind of talks about this idea of um, this idea that what's good for the farmers is then assumed to be good for nature um, because because we all you know justify our own self-interests whether we do it uh, consciously or not he's saying you know lots of um, the ecological trusts and things will say well grazing is important because it brings more diversity in or um, you know the cattle have been here for x many years and so he's actually looking I think at lots of different areas of that decision making and going right well if you didn't have subsidies uh, you know so it's one family farming 600 acres say and he's saying you know you didn't have all these yeah he talks about changing the subsidies doesn't he and uh, and because a lot of it's nonsensical and it's a, one of those books that I found I mean you have to be in the right mood like if you're feeling a little bit down about about the state mm. of the world like listening to certain chapters are fine but certain chapters are just like make you want to bang your head against the wall because he challenges things mm. that are in policy doesn't he and goes uh where's your evidence for that the evidence is literally the opposite of what you've written like he's talking yeah there was an MP minister, wasn't there who, who gave yeah. him some evidence and he read the evidence and it said no sheep should not livestock graze here or something it said like that the opposite of what she told him it had said and then he goes so what do you say and i oh, like basically shrug <laughs> you know and it's full of things yeah. like that and the same where he um yeah talks to the people that are managing the national park that he visits and is a complete um sort of nature desert and he is getting really angry while he's walking around and gets very sort of has quite uh, negative feelings towards the people that are making these decisions and then when he sits down with them actually they agree with him and they mm. know that what they're doing is wrong but they don't get their funding unless they do it yeah. and it all goes right up to government level so it's loads of people sort of should be all working in well, I, you know along the same way I felt like one of the most compelling bits is that he's saying that lots of these lots of these farmers were talking about preserving their way of life and there's two parts to what he then said which was that uh, one was that he was looking at how how long ago are they preserving something from? Because he was saying, you know, actually they're preserving farming that is a hundred years old, two hundred years old. You take the time span of a country and a wildlife and an ecosystem, it's completely arbitrary that we just go like that. That's what we need to preserve. But he's also yeah. talking about, and this is very relevant to us in the West Country, where he's saying that um, people are very concerned about the kind of diminishing need and I guess patronage of things like village pubs and local groups and small communities that can thrive for thing and he said well that of course if one land-owning family can farm 600 acres and can receive all the subsidies that come for that there is no social infrastructure that requires a pub, a post office, a bank, or whatever. And he then talks about, well, if you, one of the options would be rewilding. And he said that then opens up an industry of nature oh, yeah. walking, of archery, of, yeah. and he talks about, you know, pictures, jobs available, and all yeah. this stuff that you go, 
actually if you had a large area of rewilded land and you encouraged people from urban areas to visit you just to have this massive thing then that that just built you know and then that's where you support the pub because there's 15 people working instead of two people who can you know plow however many miles um (coughs) i did think it was interesting as well him talking about um again very pertinent to us um deer stalking and i don't remember know if you would remember this bit um because he kind of brushes past it quite quickly but he's saying that um people will say that they need to cull deers because they will overgraze and they will do all these different things and uh, one of the things i thought was really interesting he said if you deer stalk as we do now there's a season and people pick a certain type of deer they particularly want big deer which interestingly he says has led to smaller and smaller deer because the big ones get shot Mm -hmm. and can't have more children all this stuff but he said but what he says is the ecosystem has to support the entire herd herd i heard the right word Mm -hmm. herd um until it is uh hunting season stalking season he said if you introduce wolves a wolf has to take a deer every Mm -hmm. week every whatever so he said actually the ecosystem does better because it's not supporting 50 deer and then shoots down to two deer or to, to, you know, 10 deer or whatever. He said, that is a constant and manageable way of ma- managing yeah. a population. That's and, a bit and, like, um, and having better that's a bit crop, like, you know, crop yields. Like, um, yeah. It's a bit like trees having mast years, mm. um, you know, where the trees all communicate and go, okay, yeah, there's a mass year every four or five years, but, um, you know, quite randomly. So that keeps the population of the wild boar and other animals that would have eaten the tree's seeds to, a, you know, to a lower level so that they don't eat the young saplings or, and the seeds mm. and, and so on, um, because it's irregular and it's, yeah. So they know, you know, it's, the population can't be sustained to a level that's damaging to the environment. Yeah. I um, found it interesting. He, he, there's loads of statistics in the book, aren't there? Loads of facts. It's very dry he, to listen to at points. <laughs> I, some of them I kind of were like, oh, I really want to remember that though. So um, similarly to, to the beginning of Wilding, which is just full of the most depressing statistics about the numbers of species that have become extinct in mm. Britain, you know, in the very recent past. Um, I thought it was interesting that he talks about 40% of the species that have become extinct since 1800 lived in woodland and two fifths of those needed mature trees and dead wood. Mm. And in his opinion, um, it's all about woodland and wetland, Mm. which um, is, yeah, relevant, relevant for us and relevant for all of the stuff that's happening. Well, up until uh, the pandemic about uh, tree planting you know that was mm. a real drive wasn't it and I wonder whether we will get back to that at any point soon definitely in the UK there was a massive drive recently to um, plant those trees and especially here in Devon lots of kind of groups of volunteers getting together and planting loads of trees and about I do the think impact one of the, that will have my experience and uh, they could be anomalies but some of the groups that I have spoken to um <laughs> in passing people are very in, if uh, when it becomes known that i when when it becomes known that you go oh lewis owns a bit of land right immediately of tree planting groups go ding 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 let's go and talk to this man um and i and then when they find out there's woodland they're like oh okay we don't want that we want empty land pasture land to to 
reforest, I guess. Um, but uh, I'm yet to find a group who, and it could be a budgetary thing. It could just be a, a, a way it's structured. But I'm always, when I chatted to them, I'm yet to find a group that have thought about their tree planting in anything longer than five year terms. And um, I, I would be interested to know groups that are different, but my experience is that lots of this tree planting initiative was around the good feeling that you get by putting trees in the ground and trees have gone in and uh, now there's 600 more trees in this village and that's that's fantastic. And then I said, well, okay, so how, how often do you, do you check in on them? What's your management plan gonna be for, you know, you're gonna thin them out in alternate years, you do, you're doing whatever. And they kind of go, oh, well, once they're in, then we leave it. And whoever the landowner is, then it becomes their responsibility. And they kind of go, okay, well, as soon as that's convenient, they're going to get rid of that because they're, they're going to be incentivized financially to do something else. That's the thing about you. You're so optimistic, Lewis. It's really, yeah. Uh... <laughs> I am optimistic. If you could put in place, if, you know, I think one of the things that I really liked about this feral book is that he gets into the mindset and and you very quickly so i think you go with him quite quickly in this idea of he's talking about trees being planted and environments and all this stuff and for one i can't remember what the example is but he's asking someone and saying you know will this be long enough for these trees and he said well it will last 250 years and that seems to be okay before we start putting that you know before we before we even think about touching it it's 250 years and so that you get into that like long-term massive time frame, um, which is, is something that I think we're losing. Um, my experience, if I look, if I think about things in history, there seems to be a lot more examples of people having a sense of time that is different to the sense of time we have now. So we always, so in terms of, there's that story, isn't there? Have I told, I must've told you the story about the Oxford Great Hall. Have I told you about this thing? Mm, don't know. Um, uh, so Adam, that works with us, told me about this story. Um, and apparently, so the, the main roof beam, this huge thing, it's like an oak beam or an ash beam or something, and um, started to rot. And the university kind of were working out how they're going to rebuild it, how they're going to, you know, is it going to be concrete? They're going to get another timber thing, whatever. And um, couldn't work out what to do. And eventually someone are, they just kind of got around and uh, the groundskeeper, because Oxford University has this massive estate and forest yeah. and all this other stuff. And the groundskeeper had a log and he knew where the tree was that they put in 400 years ago when they built the original Great Hall. And he went, oh, no, I know mm -hmm. where that tree is. And, he, and then they were, and they've done that. And then since kind of unlocked this bit of knowledge. And he knows he knows where the roof beams are growing. He knows where the mm. um, and then similarly. So it's that kind of time frame. And I always look at big cathedrals and things and think. You, you have to be a mason that looks at that and goes, this may be the only thing I do. This may be the only bit of masonry I do. And I might not see it finished. And I might, mm. you know, they're mm -hmm. just such enormous, you know, what is it? The Gaudi Cathedral, still not finished. Mm -hmm. but, but having that sense of time and going, one day this will be great. And that we are. Yeah. And so you think that's lost now? I but, well... think, not lost but possibly rarer than it used to be. Yeah. And, and, and there is more of an emphasis on, it sounds really cheap to say like a quick buck, but yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I know what you mean. Support the podcast today by becoming a Patreon member at childrenoftheforest.com. 
Check out the podcast links for more details. And that is definitely true of things like HS2. So that's the whole argument about HS2, isn't it? That they're going, oh, it's fine, though, because we're just going to replace all those trees. In fact, we're going to plant more trees than the ones we're cutting down. It's like, it's not about the number of trees. It's about how ancient they are. And it's mm. about the fact that these ancient habitats are unique. And once mm. you get rid of them, they're gone. It's not just a matter of like, oh, we'll plant a tree for a tree. That yeah. is a whole ecosystem um, and potentially loads of species that you're yeah it really is the, is the logic of someone that doesn't engage or understand ecosystems is to go mm. a tree is a tree because yeah. we we who spend time with them and it's like anything isn't it you know i'm sure there are farmers who go a sheep is not just a sheep you know they're all different or yeah you know, yeah a, yeah a, a, but that's also the thing isn't it that lo- a lot of the landowners aren't the people that know that information so mm damage is done all the time so in the beginning of welding Isabella Tree talks about um the oak trees on her estate near her house and um and she calls in a, a specialist bloke to come and look at these trees and then um, she's wor- really worried about one particular oak tree which is very old and uh, the boughs nearest the ground are really like completely flopping down towards the mm-hmm. earth and she's going you know is what's what can we do do we need to prop these limbs up or do we need to cut the tree down like how you know and he's like nope that tree is completely fine that's exactly what it should be doing at its age like the ancient trees they let their boughs rest on the earth and they carry on going that's probably got like a few hundred years left to it mm. and it will gradually flop and that's the whole point you know that's its natural lifestyle she's like oh okay and it's like what do you really want to be worried about is those trees over there where you've been plowing right up to the roots of the tree and letting cows standing stand under them for shade and that tree is going to fall down really soon because it, you've made it really really ill and she's like I had no idea about how you know how are people supposed to know that but she is the custodian of those really really valuable um you know members of the of the natural world and she doesn't know until she happens to get this bloke in so yeah. it's um yeah terrifying i I did find bits of the book terrifying in that way oh yeah but okay so this is my this is my favorite bit about this book and i when i heard it i like immediately went and told my wife um trees my wife wife, uh trees that you typically find where elephants live oh that bit yeah uh, right where elephants live right now there is a predominant the predominant type of tree is trees that can survive being coppiced. And by coppiced, you mean ripped down to the roots and can regrow from that. So so like conifers can't do it, um, as far as I'm aware. I could be wrong, please tell me if I'm wrong. Um, No. uh, But things like willow and hazel and um, things like that are coppice trees. And uh, he is saying that that is entirely plausible that those trees are defending themselves from elephants, that our hazel and our willow and all of our coppice hedgerow is defending itself from an ancient elephant that used to live in this land. And Yeah, it's an evolutionary response to elephants in Britain. I love that bit. And and I do think that is, once once he explains that, and he explains that in a very real way, and then a few times later in the book, he talks about um, wanting to reintroduce elephants or um he talks about europe uh essentially losing its megafauna uh, yeah before other continents did and he and one of the comparisons one of the reasons he says is that in africa the megafauna lions giraffes elephants rhinos hippos all those things um 
evolved and developed alongside the human species and so learnt at a certain point learnt you stay away from those guys they are mental right they're walking around doing whatever but he likens it to um the dodo and says that when when you know uh, where is the dodo anyway um when people when explorers arrived at the island with the dodo the dodo had no knowledge that it needed to be scared yeah. of them and so then he goes into this really fascinating kind of part of like history where he says humans would have migrated slowly and would have constantly come across megafauna that looked unbelievably scary but didn't know it was supposed to be scared of them so these yeah. kind of european elephants that would have just not run away from early humans and so we and so we then wiped them out but they had been there in in uh, influencing the flora long before we arrived yeah and then he ties into because then he ties into storytelling and i love this bit where he says that that is probably where lots of myths and legends of dragons and beasts and all these things come from is people early people already reliving the tale of their like grandparents that they could no longer get so their grandparents wiped mm. out the european elephants but they're no they're no longer european elephants anymore so now they tell stories to their children of like oh we used to fight these great beasts and these whatever mm. and so that then just becomes part of our culture that humans fight these enormous beasts and western storytelling has this tradition of you know grendel mm. or um cyclopses and all that stuff dragon that, slaying and yeah dragon slaying and stuff that you go could that mm. evolutionarily come from us mm. beating the crap out of some megafauna and just knocking yeah. it and then but then interestingly he talks about rewilding elephants and says you know you would need all this connected stretches of wood of of forest yeah you'd corridors. Have, have these like corridors up and down the country and then he like and he says it would be interesting as they migrated that you would you know he's sort of jokingly talking about like a news report saying you know the pollen count is up and the elephants will be reaching Norfolk <laughs> later this week and people are just going like oh, God. oh fuck, the elephants are coming oh, and, <laughs> amazing um, yeah and imagine that spring watch would be incredible oh yeah just how all cool of that nature tv stuff and and uh, i think he's quite open and what i do like about this book is he he puts together a very factual argument for rewilding certain species and in a certain part of the book he just lists the species and says elephants i give them a score of eight out of ten they need oh yeah yeah but they don't need this wolves give them this bears used to live here but i'd give them a two out of ten because they need this and because public perception is this blah, blah blah he lists them all out and there's loads of them and he talks about oh i mean i love this book so much it talks about um uh oh all right he does talk about orcs and uh, he talks about uh, is it storks or um oh no it's a type of bird um crane is it yes and, and he says that ev everywhere in the uk that has cran that's where the name yeah. comes from it's from crane it's mm. it's the brook so we have cranbrook near us and although that's a, mm. a, a modern development cranbrook would have been the brook where the mm. cranes are from so cranberry cran cranock cran mm. you know all these places mm. that's where cranes come from um uh i've lost my train of thought now oh yeah so he's talking about these uh, these animals rewilding them in a very factual way a very logical and saying you know it would be better for this and actually it would cost less money and it would be great for the environment and then every 
every time he finishes the paragraph and he kind of just goes, and I would be lying if I didn't say it's partly because I think it would be exciting to see elephants outside or like, yeah. I think it would make going for a walk so much more exciting if I knew that there were wolves or, uh, you know. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, well, I mean, it was, it was, it was ex- like super exciting for me this week to go to our local river at Colmstock and see a little egret and I um I'd never seen one before, oh, wow. and I spoke to my dad about it, and he was just like, "Oh yeah." But when I read about it, because I, I was like, "I think that's a little egret," and looked it up, uh, you know, and they're tiny white birds, really, but they've got long, lanky legs and um, long beaks, and they stand there and spear fish, and you're like, "Well, that's not a heron." It looks way more like kind of tropical than mm. a heron, um, and that's a species that used to be really common here, and then they became extinct in this country, apparently according to Wikipedia, because people wanted their plumes, which are at the back of their heads. They've got the sort of like a mullet sort of haircut or like a mm. rat's tail feather at the back. And they were hunted for that feather for hat making, for millinery. And that's why they were made extinct. Oh, wow. They became extinct. And, um, but they're back. But they're only sort of last 20 years have been breeding here again. Mm. So to see one was just like, oh my God, you know, and even the kids were just like, what, what is that? So yeah. You can imagine, you uh, suddenly see like a huge crane on the river. It'd be amazing. Do you know, this isn't to do with this book, but it does kind of link. Do you know the thing about birds of paradise and their origin of why they were birds of paradise? No. So um, in the age of taxidermy and bringing things back to the court of Louis XVI Mm -hmm. and all this stuff, um, the, the birds in Papua New Guinea, the explorers couldn't get anywhere near them. The only place they could get near them were the lo- the tribes people that lived in Papua New Guinea knew how to catch these birds and they would make them into headdresses and, and literally just put the bird almost whole on their heads. But the first mm-hmm. thing they would do is they would take the legs off to make it into a hat. Mm-hmm. And so the only taxidermied versions that came back to the courts in Europe had no legs. And so mm-hmm. they went these birds have no legs they must be born in flight and they must never land and they must Mm -hmm. so they're called birds of paradise because europeans thought they were birds that just never landed that they were in flight their Mm -hmm. whole life and they mated in the air and they gave birth in the air and it was just because they never had any examples with legs which is (laughs) a really nice kind of like you just make it up don't you yeah we're all just making stuff Um, up I really like the bits in the book because it's sort of like twos and fro's between all of this sort of quite factual stuff and then going out and exploring and meeting other people and talking about policy. And then these chapters, which just go off on one about his own feral adventures. Like the book starts, doesn't it, with him just talking about how like tame he feels like he's become. And like Mm. the greatest challenge in his life is like opening a badly designed packet of nuts and how he just like needs some wilding in his own life like needs to rewild yeah. himself and so he moves out of London I think to Wales and um and there are these like really descriptive bits where he's off in his kayak like um cat or diving and catching spider crabs with his bare hands or um and often in quite risky situations like in his mm. kayak and then there's a massive storm and he's miles away from land and real kind of elemental forces that he's playing with and just being completely at the mercy of nature and um and I really love those bits and I thought that was quite kind of um a bit of a challenge almost a bit of a like well I've done this and I've found places and spaces where although 
the species have diminished and the opportunities have diminished, I've still got out there and found spaces and times where I felt feral and felt like I am mm. catching my own food and I'm using my own hands for these things in a way that much earlier humans would have done and how important that is for kind of your soul really. And I was trying to think about whether there was any space in our lives where we get that feeling. And if there isn't, like, could there be? Do you know what I mean? Recapitulative. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Talk children are doing um, That's our favourite thing. Recapitulative. Yeah. Play. For people who are unaware, is the best type of play. No, it's not the best. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's the play of uh, reenacting or living out the lives of your ancestors and of ancient things and you know fire fire and face painting jumping around and life and and birth and death rituals and and all those things that you go those kids have gone feral you know that's the stuff that we yeah you know each each to their own but when you and I see it in in our setting I think we both have a bit of a like that's that love that let's do that some more so Um, yeah what about as an adult though like I was trying to think and reflect and, you know, as an adult with a young family and a job and, you know, I don't live, I, we live in a rural part of the world, but we don't live at the bottom of a mountain where you can just like stroll off and be in a completely wild place. Mm. Um, and I think like the only times I can think of having done that recently, like I don't think being at work counts. No, it's, it's too cushy. What he's, yeah, it's too- yeah. And it's too, and it's, it's planned and it's you're with other people and you're not having that true like you haven't gone feral when you're running a session I don't think often sometimes maybe um there's a bit of my garden which has what we thought was like an old whetstone mine in it and turns Mm. out it was a bomb shelter made by people who lived here in the 40s because some bombs were dropped on Exeter and accidentally round here on some farms Uh, and so the people who lived in our house were so terrified that they dug a bomb shelter into the side of the hill but it oh. looks like a long tunnel into the hillside with um what looked like kind of pit props of wood holding a corrugated roof up and I was just like really fascinated by it and completely drawn to it and I didn't really want to tell my family much about it because I didn't want my kids to go in there and it collapsed mm-hmm. on them so for a while like Ed knew it was there my other half and I would just like go and have a little explore around there and just have a little look, and, like shine a little torch in. And then I'll go, I'll just go a little bit up the hill and just see what I can find. And then <laughs> I'd get like, and I'd just be kind of rootling around in the woods by myself, basically kind of looking for like clues of human activity um, from the past. And, uh, and then I'd like hear my name being called like, <laughs> Up the garden because I've been basically gone for quite a lot, quite a lot longer than I thought I had been. And they're like, "What? What are you doing?" And my only answer would always just be, "Um, playing," because I would be playing. Like I, I wasn't kind of yeah. out there for any real reason. I wasn't on a walk somewhere. I was just sort of pottering around this like weird little area of my garden. Um, but apart from that, like I can't think of a time where I've experienced what he's describing well see that's interesting because I took a completely different I took a similar thing but a different uh, maybe a different branch of of that experience um just when you were when you asked me that question then and we said you know what do you do that's really and so I immediately then had to categorize in my head okay well what what is she talking about what, what do when do I do what um and I went down the route in my head of the risky experience and the mm. the like 
um, it's just a very, very heightened experience of proprioception and interception mm -hmm. and this like you are using your body to do a thing right this this like high level and I do think there is something uh which is probably why it's quite addictive to you know if, if I'm in the gym and when they're open and I'm putting three times my body weight on my back and I'm going I'm going to bend down with this and you get to the bottom and you cannot you cannot be thinking about anything else you can't be mm -hmm. um you can't be worried about what what your partner said to you the day before or you can't be thinking about what am I doing later the only thing it is that absolute singleness of purpose that comes from knowing that like if you cock this up there's there's three you know there's a couple of hundred kilos is about to land on you um and he talks about the um the oh I can't remember what they call it but basically that like in a predator prey situation um if the predator um gives up they have lost their meal if the prey gives up they've mm. lost their life and that is something that we don't get very often on either side um mm. but I do think being physically challenged <coughs> in in the way that I would do with weightlifting I do mm. think that that is close and then and then if I'm if I'm completely honest, I think that is partly why I enjoy big building projects with the kids in the woods, because mm. there's like we were saying when we were doing some building the other day, there's something that is like I have made this. You know, we we made benches mm. earlier. You know, we got timber from a shop and we drilled it and we cut it and we we made benches. But at the end, I think we both were a bit like, like oh yeah, we made benches. Yeah. Um, but there's another bit that like part of why I think tree houses are addictive and, and fun is that to build a tree house, you have to put yourself into a physically risky situation. You can't mm. build a tree. I'm sure you can. And I know um, uh, like Tom Barden and um, uh, oh, they, the guys, they ran a like tree house making course. Um, yes. So I'm sure. Simon. There are, yes, Simon, that's it. Um, Simon Tech. And I'm sure there are ways you could go on a course, not to, I don't know, I didn't go on the course, so I don't know if this is what you do. I'm sure there are ways you could build a tree house from the ground and, you know, pulley everything up and it would be very safe and you'd secure this and you'd be from there. That's not how kids build tree houses. Kids build it by like, I'm gonna climb this and I'm gonna hold this with my like, my foot and you you shimmy along to the left and you you give me that, give me the rope now, give me the rope now, give me the rope now, you know, that is a mm. an element of just being absolutely consumed in it and it's mm. possibly where where children's play has that like you know we talk about sometimes like part of the play is saying like stop don't get me i i hate this whatever whereas you need to have a word that you just go like is that part of your game is that part of your yeah. role play or oh my are god you, are you genuinely not yeah, it. that is really doing my head in in lockdown right now. <laughs> Two children who, like, I it just confuses the heck out of me. I think maybe it's harder when it's your own kids. Yeah. But um, everything's harder when it's your own kids. But yeah, they need physical rough and tumble play. And it needs to be real to them. Not like, oh, I'm going to mm. poke you with my finger. It's like, I'm going to kick you in the guts, like, really hard. <laughs> and, then, um, and then I'm going to kick you back in the guts really hard. And I'm going to put all of my body weight onto you. And that's, like, part of the game. It's not just, like, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, push you over. And, um, and it literally goes from 
blood-curdling screams and cries of mom I can't breathe make him stop or make her stop and then so I'm like early you know I've got to get on this and then laughing like a millisecond <laughs> later absolute torrents of laughter I'm like I just don't know where to even begin with this I'm <laughs> Maybe it's fine, but yeah, it is that kind of like you can see the kind of fear, absolute terror in the eyes one minute, and then just laughing and running away. Like, oh my god, yeah, yeah. it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Um, can I go back to stuff of like the start of the book? So I really mm-hmm. loved the. I was maybe twenty minutes into listening to this book, and I immediately wrote down. Uh, this is an incredible book. Uh, this is exactly how I feel about veganism and this idea of just like, just leave stuff alone as much as you can. If you can leave ecosystems alone, leave flora and fauna alone, I think there is a benefit to that. Um, and then I thought it was an interesting bit where he, he, I can't remember if he mentions a study or if he just sort of works it out by roughly what hunter-gatherer tribes do in other countries but he says the UK could support a population of hunter-gatherers of roughly 5,000 people wow uh and then at the moment no no at at its peak if it was like fully rewilded ecosystem doing all this stuff in terms of you know if no farming hunter-gathering 5,000 people and and yep. the evidence suggests that like pre-farming, oh, that's what it was. So he's talking about pre-farming. Pre, mm-hmm. um, that is what- Oh, the, it was like a population cap, wasn't it? It was like a kind of, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. that is yeah. what the island can support, which is then very interesting to kind of carry around in your head. If you think about what are they currently in the country? It's like 6 million of us, 7 mil- mm. million of us. Um, I think that's that, right. Is it? How many? Take a guess know. now. Uh, no, I don't want to. Oh, another guess. Okay, 66 million people live. That's, yeah, that I was going to say 60, but because okay. you said six, I didn't want to look like a complete fool. Oh, no, do you know what it is? Is maybe it's six but or who's the fool now? Who's the fool anyway, now? Anyway, 66 million people live in this on this island, and yeah. or, or island and a bit of an island, because we've got a bit of an island, an island. Um, 5,000 is the, is the cap is the hunter-gatherer cap, which is really then interesting to then look at and be talking about removing things like sheep as a food system and remove it, uh, as removing all this livestock and going, actually, you know, that it just, just doesn't feasible to keep feeding and to keep uh, employing this many people. Um, but then he kind of moves a little bit and I loved this bit. He says, feral isn't a static state of being that's being protected. It's ongoing systems and changes. Mm. And that is something where he talks about um, ecological baseline. As yeah. says, your ecological baseline is defined in your childhood as the level of flora and fauna that existed and were available to you as a child. And that is mostly what people feel like they should return to. Yeah, not many people can engage with the idea that that is actually a reduction of what it was for their yeah. parents or yeah. for a hundred years ago, and so that and that links yeah. into this idea of farming and people going, we need to preserve the way we've been farming on this land. And you, 
you think are right, but you're preserving what your childhood was. And we all do it for lots of different things, don't we? Mm. We, 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 we would all, I think, without kind of consensus study, we would probably all think that the level that we were allowed to roam on our own as children was the norm. And that mm. you, you go, well, what I was allowed was exactly right and not too much and not too little. And what children are allowed today is either too much or too little because it isn't... Yeah, and the terrifying thing of that, like, shifting baseline syndrome also affects scientists. So Mm -hmm. Isabella Tree talks about that in her book as well. So um, when they're, like, you know, measuring fish stocks, for example, or, yeah, species become extinct in the UK, it's proven that scientists also are doing that and going, okay, well, you know, when I was born, this is what the levels were, and they've plummeted to and this. It's, yeah, but, it's talking about in the 70s, you know, everything apparently yeah. is from a census in the 70s. 1970, yeah. Fish, fish stocks in the 70s were already something like 300% lower yeah. than they were in the 50s. And yeah. so people go, oh, well, we've got it back to, you know, 20% of what we... And th- so this is an really interesting bit where he was saying that um, in areas where there are protected marine conservation areas, which there are surprisingly few of around the world, they then become um, actually natural sort of feeding spaces that allow the rest of the fishing industry to carry on. Because if you don't fish in these bays and coves, then the population will grow there, it will get bigger and it will have to move out of the cove and you catch it outside the cove. And as long as you don't catch the bit in the cove, it's a bit like taking something off a sourdough starter because we're all in lockdown and we're all having sourdough starters. <laughs> you know, you, you keep the starter going, don't you? And you just cream off each time. And he's saying mm-hmm. that that would actually allow for much more sustainable fishing if you mm-hmm. set up these complete conservation no-go zones. Yeah. I'm going to pause because I need to go to the loo. So you have written a note about very zeitgeisty the tiger king oh yeah um yeah well that's kind of in a bit about what he's he's talking about um issues with some people's attitudes to welding i mentioned earlier so Mm -hmm. people uh being fans of rewilding but also being fans of eugenics things like that and um a millionaire who built zoos in Kent and fetishized tigers and encouraged his keepers to just like hang out with the tigers in their cages because, you know, they were noble beasts. And then loads of his keepers were mauled to death because he told them to do this. And um, But did any of and, them have a rich husband? That's what uh, we need to know. <laughs> <is>. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, that was the sort of like, don't just go, oh yeah, big animals are cool actually yeah. you know and happen to be a right-wing asshole at the same time um give it some thought you know give it some thought yeah and, and it's, it kind of, thought. it's interesting um uh, there's a bit so linking to that then i guess there's a bit he's talking about the rewilding of oh, i'm gonna say it's i think it's beavers it's beavers yeah he is saying that um beavers are are um beneficial because the dams that they build restrict the water flow so that you don't end up with such severe flooding um they they keep the systems so outside of their like dams they actually keep the waterway quite clear um they do all this stuff and he was saying about the objections and the sort of uh 
I can't think what the word is, the kind of like the farming community around wherever these badgers, these beavers were being reintroduced and saying that they were absolutely against the idea of beavers, even in this conservation zone. And then, oh, they happened to get out and maybe it was people let them out or maybe yeah. they got out on their own. Um, but saying that it was stuff like, you know, p- farmers literally saying that they didn't want the beavers because they were going to eat their crops, despite the fact that beavers don't eat crops. They eat, you know, they, they chew the cambium off of wood and, and stuff like this and just absolutely nonsensical kind of gut reactions to mm-hmm. these kind of species coming back. But that in the book, again, I think it's a very good book in that he doesn't dismiss them as like, all those stupid people with their stupid ideas, they don't know anything. He kind of says like, the job of people who want to do rewilding is to change public perception and is to yeah. get people on side with this and to show the benefit, not to just go, you are wrong and I am right. This, a- this yeah. animal is going in. Um, yeah. Which is, I think, you know, in some ways this book is quite radical because it's suggesting some very big changes and, you know. I think it's very radical. But the, but the approach isn't radical. Do you know what I mean? The approach is very go and meet the peoples of the community, go and, t- you know, this might be a 250 year project. Um, let's talk about how do we keep people in business by changing the subsidies rather than just going, you know, get rid of the subsidies. You're living off the, you know, it's that argument, isn't it? That you could, you could levy living off the state at many different swathes of our communities and um, mm-hmm. some would take it better than others. Um. Find out about CPD courses at childrenoftheforest.com. Check out the podcast links for more details. I was just going to say something about um, species that have been reintroduced and are doing well. On the 30 Days Wild website, which is happening Mm. at the moment, um, I was just trying to find it, but I can't find it right now. But anyway... If you register for 30 Days Wild, then you get access to their website. And there's a whole section on being able to watch live webcams all over the country of um, like ospreys and puffins oh, wow. and loads of stuff like this. And I think he talks quite a lot about ospreys and yeah. he uses them as the example of a species that has been reintroduced in certain areas and the amount of money that they've made like mm. tourism, wildlife tourism, like everybody wants to see the ospreys so areas that were really deprived and um have been completely rejuvenated just by a pair of os- ospreys basically as people yeah. um spending loads of money on these nature holidays to catch this tiny glimpse but if you want to see some osprey chicks you could see them on a webcam oh, no. it's very cool and peregrine falcons and puffins. Talks, we watched a little puffin today at some point doesn't he? he says pelicans have come back and he kind of lists some examples of like there was a pair that nested here on a like a on a abandoned phone line, but then they took the phone line down. And there was a pair that nested on like a you know an an old oil rig or something, and then they got rid of the oil. You know, it's 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 a nice example of a a species naturally trying to reintroduce. Mm-hmm. Um, he does as well talk about the idea. The he says it's very important to uh, not just be looking superficially and go you know, oh, we used to have a bird with a, a uh, that was white and had a long neck. So there's this other country or this other continent with a bird with a like long white neck. We'll get that bird, you know? 
he mm -hmm. talks about like looking at the whole animal what's the size of it how much does it roam what what is it hunting pattern like um all those things and trying to say and and so you know some of them might just not be a good fit at all but that we need to consider more than just like we have bones that look like an elephant so we should just get an elephant just put them back be fine um yeah it, it, it's interesting isn't it do you think there's anything i guess what i would say is this book is very big in scope and that comes with it being quite a radical book do you think there's anything that you after however far you got went well that's an actionable point i think i will take that away and try and do that i think probably the bit that i was talking about just now in terms of trying to make more time to be feral mm. and being more observant of the spaces that i think are wild and actually assessing whether or not they are so if you visit Dartmoor, for example, and you think, oh, this is, you know, is it actually wild or is it one of those places that he describes that is touted as being like an amazingly wild space that actually is covered in sheep and therefore is very managed by he people. Talk, he talks about, is it the Cumbrian desert? Yeah, just, yeah. Conservation desert, yeah. Yeah, and um, I'd, I'd say my attitude to things changed a lot after reading Wilding because I read that first. So as an example, like there's a bit of, as a field which has been allowed to just do its own thing in our village, like right in the middle. There's a very right. small little field on the side of the road and it's now absolutely covered in sycamore and willow saplings and brambles so that you can't eat. There's, there is a gate there, but it's just, you can't even get in the gate anymore because it's so overgrown. And I know the bloke that owns it and I was at one point thinking, oh, do you know what, this, our village is really missing like a play park and an outdoor space for the village to congregate. And there are some young people in the village that have nowhere to go, nowhere to hang out wouldn't it be cool if we had that field and we got a grant and turned mm -hmm. it into, you know, had a shelter there for people to hang out. Um, and it could be like a, like an outdoor village hall almost. Right. Um, and then I read Wilding and I was like, no, <laughs> that is precious. Like as it is, that bit of land could be absolutely vital for loads of species that through our very tidy gardens, and our strimming of verges and our farming, intensive farming, um, be putting at risk, you know, that is an absolute oasis for many creatures. Um, so I sort of viewed, and I think she describes a bit in her book about like our view of what useful land looks like. Mm. And George Monbiot talks about tidy land, like our view of like what tidy rivers yeah. look like and how people are like have been dragging loads of dead wood out of rivers to tidy it up and you go why are you why are you doing that oh to make it look nice to tidy it up it's like you've literally wrecked it now like it mm -hmm. you know trees washing down a river and collecting a certain place is how many of the species that live in that habitat have survived through that natural occurrence and here you go just going Oh, I'm just going to spend like thousands of pounds, which could be really well I spent elsewhere. Like look at it, <laughs> dragging it out with a tractor, you know. Um, it's that so... thing, it's that hangover of a Victorian gardener, though, isn't there? There was something very Victorian yeah. about they they kind of their society thought that they were bringing order to the world, and they liked the yeah. You know, if you see a Victorian garden, it's very and it's been oh, it's preserved. Maybe earlier than that. Maybe earlier than isn't it? Oh, I can't remember. I remember learning about this in like. English A-level, and our teacher kind of, it was like 
Yeah, maybe it's Victorian. I don't know. Anyway, I think it is Victorian but... because there's one thing, one of the comparisons that I have heard is that one of the reasons that the origin of species was so um, badly received at first was that the Victorian view of the natural oh, yeah. world was that it was peace and harmony and uh, everything living in balance and all these things and evolution of species, um, is it evolution of species? Is that what's called? Um, it kind of paints this picture of like a constant life and death struggle that all of the natural world is in mm. and it is cold and bitter and unyielding and that did not sit well with Victorians like yeah. lovely countryside yeah and I remember um yeah and Elizabeth you talking about kind of like our view of well that land isn't isn't useful if it's not producing um milk or meat or cereal then it's not useful and therefore it's worthless like you're letting that land go to seed you are wasting it it's a waste um and her explaining why that's not the case um, and I remember while I was reading that, I drove past a field with a huge billboard in it, um, designed by a development company. And it said, help this land unlock its potential. We give your support to this building project. We are going to cover this land with concrete and build a business center here. And I was like, wow, the wording of that, like, its own land is only land only fulfills its potential when we have covered it in concrete and that's just such a it's like a mindset and once you have that challenge you're like oh yeah like why why does it only exist to be useful to us and useful in our very specific way mm. and it's just yeah it's nutty um but yeah being more feral that's being you know swim in the feral. sea more swim in the sea more try not to drown <laughs> swim in the sea more <laughs> <laughs> that's my takeaway oh, there you go <laughs> so profound how about you what's profound. your biggest uh your biggest takeaway no I, I, th I think my biggest takeaway I don't think I had anything actionable from it but I think I came away with a with more understanding of something that I might have kind of maybe I had a toe in the water before of like I, I quite like when spaces are untidy and a bit you know I like ferns and I like things all mismatched. And, you know, I've I've done some stuff um, before, some learning about permaculture, which is very much that mix of like it might not look tidy, but it is very productive, and that mixing all of that together. Um, so I feel like I've come out the other side of this book with like a more, yeah, just more of that, more like, well, actually, I'm going to do this, and actually, I have a different view of our woodland now, and and its value and its resource and you know and when you've rewilded it by introducing some wolves it'll be really fun to run a forest school session there as you yes. watch the children <laughs> run now, guys, away from the wolves. we're gonna play so, hunt, we're gonna play hunters and <laughs> hunters and rabbits now you for want, real no you don't you don't need a tail today no no <laughs> You do need to run. You do need a gun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's Excellent. how you read it out. On that it note. <laughs> doesn't foster long term, does it? Uh, how long have you been coming? It becomes like the hun the Hunger Games, a community yeah. of survivors. You just go, yes, we're a very tight knit group. Uh, anyone new that comes, <laughs> it's that Billy. That's Cumber why the treehouse is going to be like 
super fortified and really high. Have you heard the Billy Connolly joke about the, the new supporter in the lion? Mm, there's, there's two wild, it's not new supporters, it's wildlife photographers, videographers, and they're filming this lion and the lion's giving it a big rah, 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 making loads of noise. And the, one of the cameramen just bends down and starts tying his shoelaces. And the other one looks at him and goes, you are mental if you think you're outrunning a lion. And he says, fuck the lion, I've got to outrun you. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, right. That's where we are. Yeah. Um, that's it. That's it. We don't have a plan for what we're going to talk about next necessarily. Uh, no. It's near, it's the middle of June. If anybody is opening up their sessions again, I want to say good luck to all of you guys. I hope it goes well uh and just stay safe yeah stay sane stay sane bye like this podcast and want to support more episodes you can donate through patreon visit patreon.com forward slash children of the forest to show your support for the forest school podcast